today's reading is from Revelation 21, 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, or nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. You may be seated. Thank you, Jackie. I say this with no bias or discrimination, but that was the best Bible reading I've ever heard in my life. (laughs) Good morning, Arcadia. Good to see you all. If you're new, my name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors here. I have not been here the last couple of Sundays, and Tyler uh, did a great job taking care of those two uh, revelation messages. That mustache can preach, I'm telling you. Um, and uh, I was uh, away uh, for a couple reasons. I got to see our new grandson, Charlie, uh, uh, because um, uh, Darby, our daughter, and, and her husband, Joey, work at the camp in Iowa that we've been a part of for the last 27 years. And um, I was uh, scheduled last fall, they scheduled me to do back-to-back retreats Uh, there uh, these last two weekends, and it just so happens that we found out in February that that Darby was pregnant. So everything worked out. She had the baby a week before I got there. Jackie got to be there and everything. His name is Charlie, not Charles. They named him Charlie, which is interesting. And I know some of you are like, they named him after Charlie Manson. No, they did not name him after Charlie. I know, know, I I like to read true crime, but no, that's not what happened. Anyway, um, and it was fun to meet him, but he's kind of boring. He just lays there and sleeps. I took him over to the gym to play hockey a couple times, nothing, it was, you know, anyway. Uh, but I was there and uh, spoke at the retreats, that was great, got to spend a lot of time with Cammie and Tom who run the camp, and they've been there running the camp for the last 27 years, next summer will be their 28th year. The, the camp has been around for 50 years, they have actually led the camp for more than half the time that it's uh, been around. It's a wonderful ministry. They have grown it from this tiny little thing to this. It's, it's a major camp now in the Midwest, and it's great. And um, Tom uh, is Jackie, my wife's uh, cousin, and so there's a family connection there as well. And one of the things that I appreciated about this last uh, 10 days that I was there is that I got to sit and spend a little bit of time Um, quiet, calmer time with Cammie, who really is the one uh, running the camp. And I started asking, I just, I I thought, I want to ask some questions that maybe she won't want to answer, but I started thinking and I asked her, I said, I know that most camps need charitable contributions in order to meet their expenses every year. Isn't that right? And she said, oh yeah. She said the range is generally, if you're in the 20 to 25% of your revenue coming from charitable donations, that's about right. Most camps, that's where they run. If you're at 40, um, uh, 40% uh, it's, it's way too high. And I said, well, I can tell by the prices that you charge for your retreats and camps, you can't possibly cash flow without charitable contributions. She said, you're right. We run at about 21%. So they're kind of in the sweet spot there. 
And, and I was thinking about that because I, this is going somewhere, trust me. It has to do with the Advent offering. I was thinking about that because recently I've been reading some stuff about university endowments. So the, the king of university, and can we use the language king? The, big, the biggest university endowment is Harvard University. Anybody want to guess what their endowment is? Anybody know? 12 what? Billion. Not close. It's $51 billion. $51 billion. And they still charge $60,000 a year for tuition. They could run that entire university just off the interest from the $51 billion, but they still charge for uh, tuition, housing, all that. So I'm not saying they shouldn't. I'm just saying think about that. Okay. Now, then I looked at Yale. Y Yale's struggling compared to Harvard. Yale has $41 billion. Now, check this out. Yale University has more employees than students because they can. Isn't that amazing? Does it, they have more than 15,000 employees and fewer than 15,000 students. It's just crazy. So I'm listening to Cammie talk about this. They got to fight for, you know, uh, if they get a gift of $10,000, that's a huge deal to them, you know. And so I just asked her, I said, if, if somebody decided to write you a check for a million dollars, what would that do for the camp? Not a billion, just a million. What would that do for the camp? She said, it would be life-changing. It would be life-changing. A million dollars, okay? So we support every year, one, one minute, I can't remember the last time we didn't do alongside ministries for Advent. We do that every year. It's a wonderful prison ministry. And lately, we've been doing a lot with Hope Women's Center, another wonderful ministry. And we are proud to be able to help Juan Chavez, who is a wonderful guy, uh, do this mission now to South Phoenix. Okay? Now, calm down. I'm not going to ask you for a million dollars for any of them. But a million dollars for any of those ministries would be also life-changing. I mean, literally life-changing. But I will tell you this. Every year, our Advent offering is generally between thirty dollars and $50,000 split three ways. So that ten to eighteen thousand dollar, whatever it is, that ten—I'm sorry, ten to sixteen thousand dollars every year—that goes to each one of those ministries. While it's not life-changing, it helps them meet their annual expenses in a way that allows them to stay open and do the ministries that they're doing. And so, whether you give five dollars or fifty dollars or five hundred dollars to the Advent offering, it doesn't matter because it is actually making a dis difference in the lives of those ministries. So that's my little pitch for um, for the Advent offering. So be thinking about that. A couple other things I want to mention: um, we are going to have a pretty major sacred space update next Sunday. And the reason is because we have a lot of the work, uh, at least the very public work, of reorganizing and restructuring Redemption Arizona behind us. There's still a lot of uh, uh, sort of backroom operational stuff that needs to be done that'll keep Tyler and myself uh, and Stephanie very busy for the next several months. But a lot of that stuff is done, and so we're, we're able to now focus again on that um, project just in time for the city of Phoenix to finally, finally approve everything. 
It's been a long slog, as Tyler can tell you, and so we're going to have a major update on that next Sunday. And then finally, I want to mention, and I know it's still November, but we need to get this on the calendar because Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve are on Sundays this year. And so we're going to change our schedule for those two uh, Sundays. And trust me, uh, we'll, te- we'll tell you every Sunday from here until it happens. We'll put it on our website. We'll hand you a sheet that tells you the times. We're taking out a full-page ad in the New York Times to make sure everybody knows as well. And still, people will show up at the wrong time. But here it is. Uh, Christmas Eve is at 2. No morning services. 2, 3.30, and 5. And then New Year's Eve, we're going to have one service at 10 o'clock in here. Okay, so mark your calendars or make a mental note. Uh, or do both. Okay, so here we go. Last message of revelation. And yes, I've been gone for 10 days. And if you know anything about what happens when I'm gone for 10 days, I am just loaded. I'm, so I hope you've had your caffeine. And if you haven't had your caffeine, I hope you've had your muscle relaxer, whatever works best when you're listening to me. I hope you've had it. Okay, so a little review and preview of the more recent weeks. Three weeks ago, we saw the last of the three judgments, the seven bulls and plagues, and we found out that the wrath of God, the judgment of God is now finished. And we're going to talk more about this idea of it is finished later on in this message. Two weeks ago, we saw the conquest of Babylon. Babylon representing all the worldly systems we place our hope in instead of God, the economic systems, the cultural systems, the political systems, the governmental systems, the philosophical systems, the sons, all those things that will never fulfill us the way we think that they should fulfill us. And then last week, at last, the final defeat of Satan. And that brings about the question, are you going to spend eternity with Jesus or with Satan? Those are the two choices. There isn't a middle ground. There isn't a foot in each camp, and you'll decide later. Those are the two choices. I've mentioned this before. The singer-songwriter Billy Joel uh, had a line in one of his songs, I would rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. The sinners are much more fun. Well, let me tell you something, okay? Heaven is like baseball. There's no crying in heaven. And it's not because everybody's really tough, like baseball players, but in heaven there is nothing to cry about. And let me tell you about hell. There's no, there's no laughing in hell. But there is, according to Jesus, there is gnashing of teeth. Now, check this out. This is important to understand. You're going to be gnashing your teeth in hell. Eventually, you're going to need a dentist. My guess is that there will be at least one or two dentists who make it into hell. It's true. Not every dentist will embrace Jesus. So there will be dentists here. But here's the thing. With your gnashed teeth, you and your gnashed teeth will not be able to get an appointment with any of those dentists because it's hell. You can't get anything fixed there. Nothing. Here's what one scholar describes how hell is. You will most certainly have needs. And you can see the things that you must have to meet those needs. But you can never get to them. They are always just out of reach. Luke 16, anyone? The parable of Lazarus and the rich man. Here's how another another scholar describes Heaven, the opposite, the new Jerusalem. This is N.T. Wright. He says, it's not that we won't have needs in heaven. We will. But those needs will all be met, and they will be met in the most magnificent way no one could have ever imagined. 
Those are the choices before us in this whole series with Revelation. So let me go back and reread verses 1 through 4 of 21. We're going to read every verse of 21 and 22. They are that important today. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Know that the new heavens and the new earth were already talked about in Isaiah chapter 65. Here's what Isaiah records God saying, For behold, I create a new heaven and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. And verse 3 of, of Revelation 21 tells us that the dwelling place of man will be with God and God will be dwelling with man. This is good news. And again, the question comes up, are you going to spend eternity with Satan? Or are you going to spend eternity with Jesus? And he says that the old earth has passed away. Now those words passed away, does, they do not mean completely obliterated or set aside. But rather, the new earth will be a radical and eternal makeover and restoration of the fallen and corrupt earth that we know of right now. In other words, it'll be earth the way it was supposed to be before the corruption of sin ruined it in Genesis chapter 3. Again, another scholar writes this. Think of it this way. Ever since Genesis 3, the earth has been an enemy-occupied territory, but not anymore with the second coming of Jesus. And then uh, John writes that there's no longer any sea. And remember, sea represents chaos, uncertainty, insecurity, evil, and corruption. And now all of that is gone. Some people say that the New Jerusalem is the Garden of Eden restored, but it is a little bit different. In the garden, pre-sin, in Genesis 1 and 2, there was no death, no pain, no tears. And that's exactly what the New Jerusalem will be like. But there will be one big difference the tree that caused all the problems in Genesis 3 will not be in the New Jerusalem. So that will not happen again. And that again is good news. Verses 5 through 8. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion shall be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So once again, we see Jesus saying, it is done, it's finished. And so we have these three levels of being it is finished. On the cross, the last thing Jesus said is, it is finished. The, the price that was needed to be paid for our redemption is finished, completed on the cross. 
And then in the middle chapters of Revelation, we hear that the wrath of God is finished with the, uh, the three rounds of the seven judgments. And so now the wrath and the judgment of God is also finished. But we're not quite there. Jesus now says that the shalom, the peace that you and I have all been searching for our entire life, now that is also finished. All three important things that are done and finished. And again, there's a beautiful picture of the gospel. The thirsty get water without payment. This is both literal and metaphorical because Jesus paid it all and we owe him everything for it. Sin made a crimson stain on us, but he has washed it white as snow for those who have come to Jesus. There's some kind of a song that refers to that. And aren't you glad I didn't sing it for you? And then verse 8 even to the end, even to the end, there is this clear, unequivocal separation between God's people and those who steadfastly refuse Jesus. And look at verse 8. You have all of those who have refused Jesus, but that first word, as for the cowardly. Have you had someone close to you walk away from their faith in Jesus because it was too hard? And because they would rather be adored by the world than assailed by the world because they are Christians? That is exactly who this word, the cowardly, is describing. Those who have claimed to know Jesus, but then didn't like how they were treated because they claimed to know Jesus. And they wanted the approval of man rather than the approval of God. They wanted the approval of culture and the world. They wanted to be well thought of of the world and not of God. And so they decided to give it up and they moved on. Finally, in verse 8, there's that second death thing again. If you go all the way back to the second week in our series in chapter 2, the letter to the church in Smyrna, the church that was suffering persecution and oppression, and Jesus says, for those who persecute, persevere through the tribulation, the persecution and the oppression, the second death cannot touch you. And so now we get to the city, the new Jerusalem, Verses 9 through 21 describe the walls, the gates, and the measurements of the city. And we'll talk about whether those descriptions are symbolic or literal. We'll talk a little bit about that. But then in chapter 21, verse 22, through chapter 22, verse, 20, verse 5, those verses describes, describe various aspects of our life, what our life will be like in the New Jerusalem. So verses 9 through 21 then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square. Its length is the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. 
He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. This gold is so pure, it's translucent. I don't think anybody has ever seen that in our world, translucent uh, gold. The foundation of the wall of the city, the uh, foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agat, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the ten, tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. That's one honking big pearl, isn't it? Any of you like eating oysters? Have you ever run across an oyster that big? You need a lot of Tabasco sauce for that pearl, baby. And the, that oyster, sorry. <clears throat> You're not eating the pearls. Uh, each of the gates was made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like translucent glass. Now, first of all, verses 9 and 10, it's essential that we get this. The new Jerusalem is described as the bride of the Lamb, and this is significant for two reasons. Number one, it's not only the new Jerusalem, but this is also the new church of God's people. It's the bride of Christ. And then second of all, this city is a beautiful contrast to the great prostitute, Babylon, of previous chapters. The city is the contrast. Jerusalem is the contrast of all the systems of evil that humans have conjured that have for millennia promised the world that they can save us from our problems and our sufferings. All those things I've mentioned, philosophies, politics, identities, economies, wars, educations, any false gods. And it's important to remember that most of those things aren't evil in and of themselves, but they become evil when we elevate them above God. That's, it's, it's the old line. You take something that's good and you elevate it to great or above God, and that's what makes it bad. But we're the ones doing that to those things, and they become false gods, and they become evil when we place our faith in them instead of in Jesus. And notice in verses 12 through 14, the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles are inscribed. A lot of imagery from the book of Ezekiel is here. We won't go into that. But this is theologically significant, one, because it shows the unity of God's people even, even as they retain their distinctives. And number two, the number 12 is symbolic of completeness or uh, infinity or eternal. God's people are complete together. And then you look not only at those verses, but also at, at 15 through 21. And some will argue that the New Jerusalem is not an actual city, it's just symbolic of where we will live. And yet John describes this city in pretty good detail, so it seems like it might be a real city. And I will tell you, I could go either way. I, haven't, I still haven't decided. I'm not sure if it's symbolic or literal. It makes sense either way, so we're going to talk about it as either way. I'm going to start with a quote, though, from a Revelation scholar who I very much admire and esteem and respect. His name is Alan Johnson, and he would fall on the symbolic side. He says this, The dimensions of the city should, not like, should likely not be interpreted as providing architectural information about the city. Rather, think of them as theologically symbolic of the fulfillment of all of God's promises. 
And that may be true, but I will also discuss the literal implications of the city based on the measurements we've been given. First of all, there are artist renderings of the New Jerusalem coming down. Here's one. Kind of cool. Any of you have a house like that? I'd like to see it. Maybe we could have a baptism party there sometime. No? Nobody? Okay. I mean, this is Arcadia, for crying out loud. All right, so some discussion. It's interesting. Fifteen times in these two chapters, the word city is used to describe Jerusalem. So I think that might be a pretty good indication that it's a real measurable literal city. So let's talk about its size and its measurements. First of all, it's a cube. It's a perfect cube. Second of all, 12,000 stadia equals about 1,375 miles on all sides. Now that is one big cube. And it could easily fit all of the redeemed, all of God's redeemed throughout all millennia in there. A couple more things here. First of all, the only other place in the Bible described as a cube is the Holy of Holies in the center of the temple. So the city is not only the new church and the bride of the lamb and the contrast of the great prostitute of Babylon, but it's also the new temple. We'll see that again in verse 22. Second of all, I just translated 10,000 Uh, 12,000 stadia into modern mileage. And some scholars say that that shouldn't be done because it's purely symbolic. It represents an infinite multiple of 12, the complete and perfect number. In other words, John could be saying that the city is actually infinite in its size. But either way, if it's 1,375 by 1,375 by 1,375, or it's infinite, it's big, right? I mean, it's big, right? So somebody says, do you know how big the... Uh, the, the, the New Jerusalem is, your answer is, yeah, it's big. It's really big. And it's big enough to hold the entire population of all the redeemed throughout the, the years. And finally, think about this. In 1 Kings 6, when King Solomon built the first temple, the sanctuary was completely covered with gold. So again, the pure gold here is another allusion to the temple as well as signifying God's glorious home, and it's a home now we get to share with God. So now life in the city, the first half of that, verses 22 through 27. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Um, This is the first part of the description of life in the eternal city, and what's it like? Well, God is there, and because God is there, there is no need for a temple inside the city because the city is temple, and there is also no need for the sun and moon, because God's glory and the lamp of the Lamb, Jesus, is more light than we will ever need. Listen to what Isaiah chapter 60, verses 19 and 20 says about this. Isaiah describes the future of those who are faithful to God. The sun will no more be your light by day, nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun will never set again, and your moon will, ne- will wane no more The Lord will be your everlasting light in your days of sorrow or will end. Now, 
The new Jerusalem does not need the sun or the moon to shine, but it doesn't say there won't be a sun and a moon. It just says it doesn't need their light. In many ways, the new earth is going to resemble creation in Genesis 1 and 2, the Garden of Eden. And God went to great effort to create the moon and the sun and the stars. They were part of paradise, and so they won't be eliminated. It's just that their light won't be needed. But also, regular people are there. Look at the language. Nations and kings. Really? Kings? Sure. Imagine what it'll be like to have kings and nations. Now, that word nations is the word ethnos, which literally means ethnicities. In other words, a diversity of peoples and cultures all submitted to Christ. So all kinds of different people, kings and nations. And imagine what it'll be like to have those things without sin, without corruption, without war, without false gods. And then, and then we, we see that it is apparent that there will be certain, certainly there will be individuality and hierarchy. There's going to be hierarchy in heaven. But how? Aren't those things bad? Haven't we been fighting these things for thousands a year? Again, the corruption of sin has taken things that God created as good and has screwed them all up. You and I have never lived in a sinless place. So how do we know that these things won't work under sinless circumstances? And by the way, do you see, so far, do you see anything that indicates that all we will do in heaven is worship God? That's all we're going to do? We're just going to be on our knees worshiping God? You know that the, uh, for people inside of church, even inside of church, but also people outside of church, the number one most popular vision of what heaven would be like is that we're all going to be chubby babies in diapers with little wings and harps just worshiping God. Show me the verse, please. I'm dying to see that verse in the Bible. That does not describe what heaven is like. No, it's not that we're just going to be worshiping God. We're going to, in fact, it's apparent, scholars agree, we're going to have a somewhat familiar kind of life while we're there. There will be worship, yes, but there will be this familiar kind of life, just no sin. Again, Alan Johnson writes this, life in the age to come will certainly involve continuing activities and relationships, especially as they may contribute to the glory of God. This includes worship, but it's not just worship. And finally, there's no reason for the gates to shut at night. Why? Every city back then locked its gates at night. You and I lock our doors at home every night, don't we? Now, by the way, I was in Iowa again, rural Iowa. You know they don't lock their doors at night in rural Iowa? Yeah, some of you are shame. They don't lock their car doors. It's weird. So if you ever want to know what it's like to live in a sinless place, just go to rural Iowa and you'll get a, you'll get a taste of, of what it's like. But you, we lock our doors every night. Even... Disneyland, the happiest place in the world, they lock their gates at night. When they close, you can't get in. You're, you're, you're kept out. Even Disneyland. Mickey's standing there saying, mm-mm, you're not getting in here. And why is that? Why, don't they lock, why won't we lock the gates? Because there's no more evil. No more sin. It's gone. We don't have to worry about it anymore. Verses 1 through 5 of 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, Bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, 
and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. So here's another artist rendering of what it looks like inside the city. You see the, the river and the gold and I mean, it's just, that looks kind of cool. I don't think I'd mind living there. And verse 2 of chapter 22 is one of the great Bible verses, I think, for three reasons. First of all, let's talk about the fruit. Now, I love fruit, but I honestly don't buy very much of it. Uh, Jerry Seinfeld once said that fruit is a gamble, and he's right. I would say that 50% of fruit that's put out is a fraud. And you just a guy like me, I don't know which 50% is the fraud. And so when you take home bad fruit and you're looking forward to something juicy and, and luscious and wonderful and you bite into it and it's awful, it's one of the things that we, we regularly, you and I regularly spit bad fruit out of our mouth. We put a lot of other weird stuff in our mouth. We spit bad fruit out of our mouth. And so I don't buy a lot of it. That's why I'm looking forward to the new Jerusalem. It's going to be perfectly uncorrupted fruit every single time. Mangoes, nectarines, peaches. Avocados, perfect, even cantaloupes, which at their best are marginal. Even those will be decent. It's going to be wonderful there. Okay? But also, there's no tree that might cause a problem. Did you notice that? Again, there's, no, there's not this tree that could cause a problem. Second of all, the leaves. Understand in heaven, the nations, the ethnicities will not be eliminated, but rather they will be healed by the leaves of this glorious tree. And then third, the river. Perfect, pure, always available water. Water was a big deal to ancient people. Getting drinkable water was a constant challenge. So this description meant a lot to those people who were receiving this description. If you, if you could find drinkable water and live next to it, that was a huge find for people, but it was hard to find because usually you were downstream from other people who were polluting the water. That's why every morning if you had drinkable water, you had to put some wine in it to try to disinfect it. So you're, you're drinking kind of diluted wine all day long. I know some of you are like, well, that sounds like the New Jerusalem. No, it, it's not. Because of all the other stuff that you're having to put in there. So this clean water, we tend to take water for granted here in the United States. But in many other places in the world, they don't. And one of the reasons the gospel is so popular in other places in the world is because they hear that and they say, Jesus can do that? And the answer is yes, Jesus can do that. You and I just don't get excited about truly exciting stuff, it seems. And by the way, I want to also want you to notice, this is an argument from silence, but I'm going to make the argument anyway. Notice nobody is eating meat. Nobody's eating meat. Now, I like meat. I'm not a vegetarian, you know, but there's apparently not, nobody's going to be eating meat up there. Now, I might try to sneak into hell for just a minute, grab a Zinberger, I mean a Zinberger, okay? You know, I, but, but there's no meat there, okay? There won't be any need for it, and you won't miss it. You won't remember the old things. But I also want you to notice, there's no kale either. So, ha-ha, got that going for us. People clapping for that, wow. All that is just to set up this very serious point. Here's what we need to understand. You and I have only seen and experienced and been around men and women as disordered, as corrupt and sinful. We have never experienced other men and women as they were intended by God to be 
prior to Genesis 3. You and I have never experienced insects and animals as they were intended to be pre-Genesis 3. Those scorpions that, by the way, we have scorpions in our house, those scorpions that come into our house, and we try desperately to kill, they're going to be our friends in the New Jerusalem. I know that's hard to imagine, but they will be. All those flies in Iowa, so there are flies in Iowa. All those flies, friendly, friendly flies in Iowa. We've never seen nature unchained and undiminished as it was intended to be, only disordered. You and I have only ever seen things that are cursed and dying and corrupted and disordered. That's how beautiful, powerful, and effective the gospel of Jesus Christ is. And again, that's why I can't wait to be there. Finally, verse 3, there will be worship in the New Jerusalem, but also look at verse 5. We will also participate in ruling in the New Jerusalem. It's not just worship, but it's the rest of life. Only now we will rule in harmony without sin. Verses 6 through 9. And he said to me, these, are the, these words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits and of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of, this prophecy of, of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. So we now transition from the vision to the conclusion of the book and look at the dichotomy in verse 7. He is coming soon. And remember, the question is how many years in a biblical soon? And the answer is we don't know. It could be 10 years, it could be 10,000 years, but he is coming, it's undefinable. And he says, keep these words, they're specific instruction. And in verse eight, there's only one who is worthy of worship. And, and, And you see how easy it is for us to fall into the trap of worshiping something else. One scholar notes that even John, in the midst of all of his, he's experienced now with Jesus, he's susceptible to the temptation of worshiping good but wrong things. And now we wrap it up, the last 12 verses of this book. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of this prophecy, of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. I'll I'll explain a little bit about that weird verse. Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me. To repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. And let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add him to the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away the From the words of the book in this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all.
Amen. Verse 10, there's an urgency to get these words and teaching to the churches. Rather than shying away from Revelation, as so many people over the centuries have done, we are to read it and study it and embrace it and know it. We're supposed to know this stuff. And then verse 11, I know that verse 11 sounds kind of flippant and even fatalistic, but it's really not. A couple of points about verse 11. Number one, um, this verse is used to urgently encourage the reader to keep yourself from false teaching and immorality. And then the second reason that it's there, it's, it's like, let the filthy be filthy and let the righteous be righteous. What Jesus is saying there is he's saying, listen, the world is corrupted by sin and nothing is, is overall going to change any of that until I come again. In other words, hear this, you are not going to change the world. You're not. Now, you are called to do what you are called to do by the power of the Holy Spirit in your world, in your sphere of influence. But you are not going to change the world. Even Bono didn't change the world. He did some good work, wrote a book, and, he did, and, and that's wonderful, but he didn't change the world. It's a blip on the screen. Princess Diana, before her fateful crash, she did some great work, but it, but it didn't change the world, and it's only a blip on the screen. And they had a much bigger platform than anybody in this room. But we are called to take care of what we are called to take care of in our own little world. We can't change the world. Only Jesus can do that. Verses 14 and 15. The Bible is not shy about this truth. There is a heaven to be gained and a hell to be shunned. There's no equivocation. And then in verse 17, there's one last invitation to the gospel. You've got to come to Jesus. And finally, in verses 18 and 19, there is this one last warning. Don't add anything to this book or take anything away from this book. Now, some people over the years have tried to use this as an argument that we can't add to or take away anything from the entire Bible. And that is true. We are not to add to this or take away from it. But, it, but that's not what John is specifically referring here. He's specifically referring to the book of Revelation because he and Jesus knows that people over the years are going to take the book of Revelation and they're going to manipulate it in ways that are false teaching and heresy more than any other book in the Bible. And that is exactly what has happened. And what he's saying is if you do that, if you malign this book, if you take anything away, if you add to it, if you knowingly misinterpret it, if you do anything to scar this book, you're going to be added to the plagues that are described in this book. Don't mess around with this book. And I know that's why some people say, I don't want to teach it for that reason. But there's ways of knowing how to teach it. And we should know this book. We should just not use it for manipulation or control, and that's a problem. The Ike's factor about that should be high, and yet the number of people who have defied this warning is mind-boggling. Lastly, in verse 20, for the third time in this chapter alone, Jesus says he's coming soon. And John responds with what should be the prayer of every one of us. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Our gracious and holy God, what a... What a challenging and exhilarating 12 weeks this has been. And I am so thankful that this has been recorded for us to study and to know and to be able to know you better, to know not only your grace, but also your justice. 
Thank you for that, God. We praise you for that. And now as we uh, turn ourselves to the elements of the Lord's Supper and to singing a, a few more songs to praise you, I just pray that we would take these words with us and that we would urgently try to live these words by the power of your Holy Spirit. And it's in the name of your Son we pray. Amen.